Modern discussions about the last part of John chapter 6 have become a hotbed of controversy. Those who self-describe as Calvinists and Arminians have been at battle over this passage for decades. And I, unknowingly, jumped into the middle of that mess back in the fall of 2003. I was in my master's program. I thought I understood what the passage said. But then one of my professors challenged me to think outside my theological box. And today, I'm excited to share the journey I've been on with the Bread of Life Discourse. Welcome to episode 11, All That the Father Gives. And like I suggested, today I'll be sharing a little of my own personal story about the dialogue in John 6, 26 through 71. It's often referred to as the Bread of Life Discourse because the discussion begins right after the feeding of the 5,000 event, which we discussed briefly in the last episode. A group of people from that event followed Jesus across the Sea of Galilee, and when they found him, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. And that's why the discussion is called the Bread of Life Discourse. It's a conversation to those seeking physical nourishment about the bread which endures to eternal life. That's how Jesus describes his words and his ministry and essentially who he is. Well, that's simple enough, you might ask. So what's what's the controversy? Well, it's a bit more complicated than just that first statement. And today, I'm going to do my best to briefly explain what it is that has become the controversy. And I'll give you lots of links in the show notes for further study for those that want to go that direction and do some follow-up. But it's not my intention to focus on much of those details of that larger theological discussion. The main point, the main story I want to tell is my personal journey that I've had with this passage. In some ways, it was the defining moment in my spiritual development. It was really the first time that I remember having to rethink something that I thought I already knew about Scripture. And let me tell you, it was a difficult process for me. But at the same time, it was exciting. And it has caused me to passionately pursue my study of the Bible ever since. So let me take you back in time to 2003. That's just for perspective. That's the year that the movie Elf premiered. Okay, so we try to always tie our timeline back to famous movies. (laughs) And I had been in real estate uh, as an agent for about 10 years. I was active in my local church. And I had been through, I just completed seven years of an in-depth Bible study with an international group called Bible Study Fellowship, BSF. And one of my real estate buddies, his name is Pete, he told me he had started taking classes at a local startup seminary in Salem, Oregon, where we lived. And that intrigued me because I was looking for something a little more in depth. So I signed up just one class at a time. And one of those early classes that I took was titled Man, Sin, and Salvation. It was co-taught by two very well-educated men who were actually nationally known for their research and writing, and I absolutely loved the class. Well, once we got into the class and through the man and the sin part of the curriculum, we moved on to salvation, and that section was taught by Dr. Earl Rodmacher. I quoted some from Rodmacher's work back in episode three, so if you haven't listened to that episode yet, you'll want to go back and give it a listen after you're done with this one. 
One of the passages Rodmacher had us read was the Bread of Life discourse. And we read things within that discourse like this from John 6, 34 through 40. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up in the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up in the last day. And also later from that same passage, we read John six forty four and 45, which says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. And I thought I knew what these statements meant. My seminary classes were being taught largely from a Calvinistic perspective. And for those not familiar, there are two pretty big schools of thought when it comes to how God saves humanity. The two schools are named after two theologians. Calvinists base their views largely on the teachings of John Calvin. He lived from 1509 to 1564. And Arminians base their view on the teachings of Jacobus Arminius from 1560 to 1609. So they weren't contemporaries necessarily, but one followed the other chronologically. And for decades, our modern theological conversations have been thought of as somehow fitting into or being attached to one of these two frameworks. People like to argue that you're either a Calvinist or an Arminian, with little room for anyone to be anything else. And like I said earlier, it's not my purpose here to go into the details of those two theologies, but I will mention that the Bread of Life discourse is one of the linchpin passages that Calvinists use to back up the idea that salvation, that process of salvation, starts with God's choice of who he will save. And Calvinists believe that man doesn't have any say in the beginnings of faith. God creates faith and gives it to whomever he wishes. And on the other hand, Arminians argue that the scriptures teach that man possesses the ability to come to faith by an act of his own will, separate from a predetermined choice of God. And just from that brief description, you can probably already hear the arguments that could come out of two such opposing views. And just based on the passages I read earlier, you might already see how John 6 has become a controversial passage for many evangelicals. It's statements like verses 36 and 37, But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And then again in 644, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. When read within the Calvinistic understanding of salvation, these passages seem to very much support the idea that man's salvation begins at the hand of God. It's God's drawing and a giving that causes them to come to an initial faith. And in 2003, 
that's how I read these passages. Although I wasn't really well versed in all of the ideas of Calvin or Arminius at that time, I had been taught to read those passages a certain way, and only one way. And I didn't know it, but I had already started developing grooves in my theology. What are theological grooves? Well, we all know that we're creatures of habit, that people are, everybody is. It seems to be a part of who we are. It's in our DNA. We love our routines. And don't get me wrong, they're important for our survival, routines are. But the thoughts and habits that begin as the most helpful of grooves, uh, groove being like an established way of thinking about a passage of Scripture, can eventually turn into dangerous ruts in our theology. We've all driven on a road that has bad ruts and how our tires get caught in the ruts, and it's actually kind of hard to get out of those ruts and sometimes dangerous. Well, when ways of thinking become too ingrained, they can cause us to theologically just take our hands off the wheel and not really pay attention to the textual clues and potentially miss God's signs to make a turn in our theology. That's what happened to me with this passage. I had been taught one way to read these verses and one way to understand them. And I had put this passage on cruise control. I was stuck in a groove and was well on my way to developing a rut. And theologically, ruts are really hard to get rid of. That's where my class and Dr. Rodmacher comes in. At the time of my class, that particular class, Dr. Rodmacher, who was a lifelong Calvinist, was reconsidering just bits and pieces of his long-held doctrine. He assigned a book for the class by C. Gordon Olson. Now get this. It was entitled Beyond Calvinism and Arminianism, An Inductive Mediate Theology of Salvation. <laughs> just by that title, you can guess what the author's trying to do. He's trying to say that there may be another way to read the scriptures that doesn't fit directly into the two main camps, Calvinism and Arminianism. There are many other books that delve into this same question. And another one from the same time period, written in 2001, is Norman Geisler's book titled Chosen But Free. In the first episode of the podcast, he is the apologist I talked about back in episode one, uh, the one who had held dogmatically to several different theological views throughout his life of study. So, not knowing exactly what I was getting myself into, I dove into the book by Olson, and I read through the whole thing. But at several points, I wrote question marks in the column to mark the ideas he was trying to convey that... I needed to revisit. In my first reading, I wasn't picking up everything he was laying down, which required me to go back and revisit it later. One of the pages that had a big question mark on it was in chapter four of the book. Chapter four is titled, Whatever Happened to the Image of God in Man? And in that chapter, Olson asks questions like, can man respond to general revelation? God just generally revealing himself within creation. And another question, can man seek God? These are both topics heavily discussed in the Calvinist and Arminian debate, and Olson was just proposing that we revisit some of these particular scriptures again to try and see exactly what they say. And you may have guessed it, one of the problem passages that he identified is in John chapter 6. And I'm going to read from Olson's work in just a minute, but before I do, 
I'd like to describe what happened to me in this process. After that first time through the book, and when I revisited what I'm about to read to you, I really couldn't understand what the author was trying to say. I mean, I could tell he had a point he was making, but for the life of me, I just couldn't see it. It was so frustrating. I mean, I remember distinctly, I was studying the night before Thanksgiving. It was November 26th, 2003. Elf, the movie, was just like three weeks old at that point. And I read through the same five or six pages in Olson's book to try and figure out what he was trying to get at. And I just couldn't get it. It was like I had blinders on. It was a grueling process for me that night. And it eventually got so late in the evening that it was too late to call my seminary buddies or Dr. Rodmacher to get his input. My wife, Lisa, had long ago fell asleep right in the bed next to me. So it turned into what I can only describe as a theological wrestling match with C. Gordon Olson. And I was losing. Well, this continued into the early morning hours of Thanksgiving. And I was exhausted. I was so tired. So at 1.30 a.m., I set the book down, and I prayed this simple prayer. I said, God, I know this author is trying to explain something to me, something about this passage, but have not been able to figure out what he's trying to say to me. I'm going to read through it one more time, and then I'm going to bed. I didn't even say amen. <laughs> that was my prayer. How pathetic. <laughs> I don't know if you noticed, I didn't even ask for anything. <laughs> I was just telling God the circumstances. <laughs> Well, I got done praying, and I began to read page 106 again. And for maybe the 20th time that night, I was reading page 106, and then something happened. At the end of last episode, I described looking at different types of pictures and how you can't see them sometimes and how something magically seems to appear all of a sudden. And the only way I can describe it is in those terms. It was like one of those auto stereograms that I discussed those 2D pictures that have 3D images hidden within them when you train your eye to see them just a certain way, you don't see it, and then all of a sudden, something brand new appears within the thing that you've been staring at for so long. That's what happened with the passage out of Olson's book that I'm about to read to you. And I'll just preface it by saying this. If you've been listening to this podcast, as I start to read Olson, you might see it right away. Because the content that I've been sharing as we've marched through the book of John, a lot of it was birthed that Thanksgiving morning. This from Olson's book, page 106. There are a number of scripture passages upon which Calvinists base their concept of inability. It is important to examine them at this point. And then he quotes John 6, 44 and 65. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up in the last day. And he was saying, for this reason, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Olson goes on to say, Calvinists assume that apart from an irresistible drawing of the elect, no one, the non-elect, is allowed to come to Christ for salvation. And here Olson has a footnote that says, Packer has stated that this is one of five major passages upon which he bases his Calvinistic viewpoint. Back to Olson. On the surface, 
it might seem that they are right. However, this is to ignore the context, which is crucial. The Lord is addressing those who have seen him and yet have not believed, who are set in contrast with the believing remnant of Israelites who belonged to the Father, but now have been committed into his hands. He refers to them in verses 37 and 39 as all the Father gives me. He keeps stressing faith as a distinguishing feature of this remnant. Chapter 6, verse 35, verse 40, verse 47, who were taught by the Father, verse 45. He is referring to the early disciples who had readily responded to him when they met him, cross-reference John 1, because they were already regenerate. This becomes clear in his high priestly prayer in John 17, verse 6, 9, and 24, where he clearly identifies them as his early disciples, set in contradistinction from those who were to later come to faith through their word. That's in chapter 17, verse 20. Thus, not all the elect. Therefore, from the flow of the context, it becomes clear that this has nothing to do with the elect, but rather with the believing remnant, the genuine nucleus. Later on page 107, Olson says this, It would seem that some of these Jews had an acute case of gospel hardening. That is, they had seen the Lord work incredible miracles, especially the feeding of the five, really the 15,000. They heard his marvelous teaching and yet did not really believe because there were serious problems with their mindset. They could not come to Christ. It wasn't because they were non-elect that they couldn't come to him. It was because they were unwilling to believe and obey the revelation God had given over two millennia throughout the Old Testament. So I'll just interject here. Olson's point was that we have ignored the context that the words were originally spoken into. We've brought them into our Calvinistic and Arminian debate context And we assume that that's what God must be addressing in this passage. But what if, and this is me, what if Jesus wasn't talking about John Calvin's theological system and the five points of tulip? What if Jesus was talking to people in his context and only about his context? And that's what I couldn't see. I was in such a Calvinistic groove that I couldn't read the text any other way. Now, let me be clear. By discussing this, I'm not trying to jump into or comment on our modern systems. I'm not saying either Calvinism or Arminianism is a preferred system of theology. I've just come to the conclusion that the original context of the Bread of Life discourse suggests it's not talking about what we've led people to believe by those two systems. And I know what you might be thinking, (laughs) because I used to think this way too. If this passage isn't saying what the Calvinists think it's saying, then the only other conclusion must be that the Arminians are right. But that's polarized thinking. That's thinking that says there's only two ways to think about this. It's that type of thinking that's leading us down the wrong road when we study scripture. So I made it through Thanksgiving that year, 2003, and I was so excited that I finally figured out what Olson was saying. I mean, whether I agreed with him or not was beside the point. I had figured out what his argument was, and that was a major victory for me. I stayed up until 5 a.m. that Thanksgiving morning, 
Then I only got a few hours sleep before we had to get up again and go visit family for Thanksgiving. And I'm telling you, I was exhausted. And yet I was so excited to discuss this new insight, this new way of seeing this passage with anyone who would listen. And eventually, after the holidays, I asked another professor from the seminary about Olson's understanding of the John 6 passage. He kind of cut me off and he said, John 6, oh yeah, James White completely just dismantled all of those arguments in his debates with Dave Hunt. You just need to go look those up. And I had no idea who James White or Dave Hunt were at that time. And so I did. I went and I looked them up. And it turns out that Dave Hunt had written a book titled, What Love Is This?, with a subtitle of Calvinism's Misrepresentation of God. And James White, a Reformed Calvinist, wrote an open letter back to Dave responding to his book. That letter was published in May of 2002. And I've got a link in the show notes that will take you right to that letter if you're wanting to read it. It's good reading. It's good historical reading at this point, especially in the overall debate. Then on May 15th, Hunt wrote an open response back to James White. So we had this book that started it, a letter about the book, and then a letter about the letter, and we've got a controversy. We've got a theological debate. And later, these two men would take their debate into book form. Interesting how that works, right? And I'll, again, have notes to all of this in the show notes. I'll have links, and you can go research it yourself. So I looked both of these letters up, and I read them thoroughly, and I was surprised with what I found. Both men, the Calvinist and the Arminian, they were both arguing about the John 6 passage from within their own theological systems, Calvinism and Arminianism. And they were both completely ignoring the original context of the passage, the context that there would have been a faithful remnant alive during Jesus's ministry that already believed in God, that had already come to a saving faith, that were the Father's possession, that would have needed, theologically, they would have needed to have been handed off to the Son, to the Messiah, who had been promised in the Old Testament and who is now showing himself to the world. Neither of these men, in their back-and-forth debates, even considered a believing remnant alive at the time of Jesus's ministry. And I'll be honest with you, at times, the back and forth conversation that these two men have, it's an embarrassing display of how these types of conversations can end up. So much time is spent bashing each other's system and attacking their personal reputations. And what I found was that neither one ever truly addressed that original context. Neither one acknowledged that there would have been a believing remnant alive on earth when Jesus started his ministry, and that this group of people would have already been saved through their faith in the Old Testament revelation of God. It's these people who would have been looking for and readily receiving Jesus when he claimed to be the Messiah. It's these people that the Father was giving to the Son. Neither Dave Hunt nor James White considered this group when approaching the text, and both of them plugged the words of Jesus into their preconceived theological systems, and I believe they missed the whole point of the passage. Well, 
Well, that's it for today. But before I go, I just want to step in one more time because I know there are people listening to this podcast. I mean, you may not even have really known there were two camps, Calvinist and Arminian camps of theology out there. You may have just been going to church and you may have just thought this is the way the Bible reads and this is what it means because that's what my preacher told me or that's the way I've been taught to read it. There is one way that this Bible needs to be read and understood. The ability to pick up the Bible and clear our culture out of the way and do the best we can to dive into the original culture and ask the original questions that would have been asked by the original recipients of the text, I believe will get us closer to that truth in a much more efficient way. And that truth may fit nicely into one of our currently established theological systems really nicely, but it might not. And it may be that there's more than just those two systems that we've adopted in our current culture that tend to be polarizing views of how God works. It could be that there's some other way that this whole thing is supposed to be read and understood. And if that's true, if it is something other than one of the two systems that we've adopted currently within our culture, then we've got to have the eyes to be able to see that. And the only way we're ever going to see anything different is if we have the ability to rethink scripture. I'm also excited to start working on my first question and response special episode, but I'll need some questions to answer first. So if you've got a question that's come up while listening to one of the episodes or just a question in general, I'd love if you would send it in. You can submit them to me through the website at rethinkingscripture.com and I'll collect those. And when we have enough, I'll put together a special Q&R episode. I'm really kind of excited about that. And I'm also very intimidated. So make the questions easy, please. In the next episode, we'll take a look at Jesus's teaching at a feast in Jerusalem, and we'll discuss just how complicated his audience had become. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time on the Rethinking Scripture podcast. <laughs>